Hello, this is Rob Massey, and welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is episode 13, Damnable Doctrine of Disfellowship. In this episode, we're going to look at how evangelical Christians, in an attempt to save their unbelieving friends and family, often separate themselves from relationship. When there are times together, for example, the holidays or special events, tensions can arise due to differences in core beliefs. The tension is normally the result of over-militant evangelism, an evangelism that can exist on both sides. Atheists are great evangelists. The catalyst for this podcast was the podcast of atheist Matt Delahunty. On his 50th birthday, he received a love bomb from his mother, and I will allow him in his own words to describe that time. We will consider the research on religion and morality. We will look at some of the core Bible passages that are used to justify separation from others. And we will consider Jesus' actions as a way forward toward reconciliation. I hope you enjoy the program. The rise of secularism has made Christians very defensive. We know we are required to love, so we wrap our concerns for unbelieving children, spouses, friends in awkward and uncomfortable conversations. We think we are being subtle, but what is actually happening is we are not so subtly making a a secular person feel judged at best and undervalued at worst. Matt Dillahunty put in words this feeling when he opened up about his parents on his 50th birthday after receiving a birthday card from them. I was sickened by my own past behaviors after hearing his words. I felt this tragic sense of of guilt that I allowed myself to dilute relationships because of a divergence of belief. My summary thoughts in this podcast will be that we certainly cannot think that separation from others will in any way bring about the glory of God. So with that, let's listen to Matt Dillahunty as he provides us with an example of the suffering that can be caused by what some Christians call tough love. That's the normal thing that I expect. I don't really like it, but it it's not a big deal. And then there's a letter. For all of you who have dealt with, for all you atheists out there who've dealt with religious family members, and um, some of you, this, this will hit home. Some of it, you, it's going to be kind of a surprise. Some of you will think this isn't that big of a deal. And some of you will be like, holy crap, how could they say that? Um, at the top of the letter, and it's one a page and a half on a little memo sheet, At the top of the letter, she lists Paul Begley as the internet preacher that she listens to, and Tony Evans, Stillwater's Charles Lawson as the preacher that other people in the family listen to. Then immediately below that is Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9, 1 John 1.9, and then it's bracketed to say, the Roman road to God, and then in parentheses, salvation. Now, my first thought is, you know I know the Bible better than you. Why the f*** do you think you need to be sending me a parade of Bible verses? You had me in church from the time I was five years old. You think I don't know these verses? You think I don't know the road to salvation? You think we hashed all this out in December uh, about where I sit. But 
okay, at this point, I'm just like, whatever. You're going to be preachy. This is my mom writing. Dear son, before your candle goes out, dad and I pray you will repent, in all caps, and receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart. He loves you and paid the price for your sins, John 3.16. As if there's anybody on the planet who didn't know that verse. We are, all caps underlined, the last generation. Judgment is about to fall on this world. America is an abomination to the Lord. God does promise to rapture his own before destruction any day now. It's been a great joy to be your parents and a great pain. We hope to see you in heaven. Our God is wonderful. The devil has lied to you. Happy birthday, love mother. And my dad added, wow, half a century old, love you very much and very proud. Just praying your energy would be directed to the Savior. He is our joy and can be you, yours. Love you much, Dad. Now, yeah, okay, they said they loved me. They said happy birthday. Fuck that. This is some absolutely cowardly bullshit. This is passive-aggressive love bombing that has nothing to do with love. They took my birthday, which, yeah, I don't care that much about it, and made it about them and their religion and their fears. And if this had happened a decade or so ago, I would have written it off as, yeah, okay, they're, they're struggling with this. Well, it's too late. Fucking get over it. You, you're convinced that I'm coming back to Jesus. I'm not. Even if Jesus is real, your Jesus is a dick, and I want nothing to do with him. I'll no longer be an atheist. I'll acknowledge that he's real, but I'm not going to worship or revere any God that could turn my parents into babbling buffoons like this who don't understand what love is, don't understand how you should say happy birthday to somebody. I don't like this preaching at. This is cowardly because we could have had a conversation. We did have a six-hour conversation that I thought got us at least past this kind of crap. But instead, they wanted to do a one-directional communication preaching at me. Oh yeah, and have a happy birthday. So I read it, and I was pretty pissed. Not at them as much as what their religion has done and how it has driven a wedge between us. The mere fact that we don't agree on this and that they can acknowledge that I know vastly more about this subject than they do and yet still toss out Bible verses and tell me once again the same thing that they've told me dozens of other times. We're praying for God to stop you, whatever the cost. Before your candle is burned out, we hope that you repent. The devil has deceived you. That's not what my birthday is about. And yet that's what they made it about. And so about 10, 11 years ago, uh, my brother, who is uh, awesome, one of the greatest fathers on the planet, the best brother I could hope for, we disagree. He's a Christian, I'm not, but we get along. There would never be a rift between us over anything like this. And he would never think to do anything like this. So why do evangelical Christians have this belief? Well, there are many Hebrew scriptures that point to this need for separation. And last week, uh, we finished up Passover, and that's both celebrated by Jews and Christians. And it celebrates the separation of the Israelite tribes from Egypt. And over and over, Moses talks about this event of the Passover being a, 
a point of distinction between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. Over and over, it's talking about the separation, the distinction, the distance that God was going to put between Israel and their captors, and that this Passover was this point of celebration about that separation. What I found really interesting is that when I went to the New Testament and began to look at some of those passages that referred to the blood of the Lamb and Jesus dying for our sins and blah, 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 all of that stuff that we talk about during Resurrection Sunday, all of those metaphors and images get pulled together by writers like Paul into this image of reconciliation. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that causes the two different peoples, the Gentiles and the Jews, to be reconciled to one another. Where the first Passover was talking about the separation of the Egyptians and the Israelites, the people of God and the ungodly people, Jesus is now, through his death and suffering as the Passover lamb, becomes the reconciliation of the whole world. I think that's powerful. And so keep that in mind as I quote some of these Old Testament verses. We've got to recognize that Jesus is the one who defines for us God. Not Moses, not the prophets, not anybody else. Jesus is the one who defines it. Now, I know you might say, well, Rob, who wrote the Bible? Jesus didn't write the Bible. I understand that, and we'll deal with those Uh, tricky questions uh, later. But if we just recognize that the words of Jesus, the life of Jesus, as we understand it, are more definitive for the Christian faith than anything that Moses or the prophets say. If you look at Numbers 25, this is a really powerful, almost disturbing image. The children of Israel are mixing with some another tribe that doesn't believe in God, doesn't have any of the godly background. And a man and a woman, uh, a man from the tribe of Israel and a woman from this other tribe outside, they go into their tent in front of all the people and they start having sex. At that point, everybody's just shocked. My God, what is happening? We've got we've to stop this. And so one of the p- priests, Phinehas, runs in there, grabs a javelin and thrusts them through, both through the belly. It's a graphic and horrifying story. But at that point, Moses interprets what Phinehas has done as making atonement. That action was an at-one-ment. That was supposed to have brought God's anger down and allowed him to fellowship again with the Israelites as they traveled through the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 13, the writers, reflecting on Moses' writings, said, Purge the evil from your midst. Various sins that were depicted there in throughout the law of Moses were followed with this purge the evil from your midst or separate that person from you. It was about judgment. It was about distance. It goes all the way back to this concept of holiness where God was way up here, then Moses, then the 70 elders, and then the people. And there was this great chasm between of holiness that existed. Like, think about it as rings of holiness. So when you look at what happened with Matt Dillahunte with his parents, his parents are creating rings of holiness. They're creating separation between Matt and them. 
because of their belief that God wants this, that Jesus is calling for this kind of judgment and distance. It's not just the Old Testament that has some of these ideas in it. One of the most often quoted chapters in the Bible about putting a distance between you and a sinning person is from 1 Corinthians 5. Paul, who was a persecutor of the church originally, didn't believe in it, didn't believe in Jesus, didn't believe in the followers, was actually murdered followers. He becomes a Christian, and then he turns and begins to go out throughout the Gentile cities, cities of Asia Minor, Europe, and begins to evangelize. Well, at one point, he gets to this city of Corinth, and he, he, he builds this amazing church. Uh, but the church, like all of us, has some issues. And one of those issues was a man who took his father's wife, then continued to celebrate within the Christian community. And Paul's like, hey, you need to deliver that guy unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his soul might be saved. You need to get him out of your midst. Why are you rejoicing over this guy's behavior? He did it with such fervency that we grab those scriptures today and we say, well, when that person does this bad behavior, then it's like, separate that person. Get them out of here. Get them out of the church. Let's put distance between us and them. And the, the reality of the scriptures is that they all have a context They were dealing with something very specific. I think it's interesting that Paul says, not even the Gentiles think this is a good thing to do. He was really ratcheting up. Why why are you excited about behavior that even the Gentiles look at and go, wow, that's not good. That's wrong. The, The actions of this man in Corinth were being decried by even unbelievers. We know that not everybody that was sinning and doing wrong in that church were like disfellowshipped, right? We know that. If we just go to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, we see that men are going down to cult prostitutes. You know, this is crazy. But Paul doesn't say, hey, throw those guys out of the church. He says to them, hey, guys, don't you know that this is kind of like a not a natural act here that anybody who joins himself to a prostitute and they're a believer in Christ is actually joining Christ in that kind of relationship? He's trying to get them to dial it down. And then there's no, there's no problem from a Christian perspective to give guidance for healthy living and things that produce societal balance and, and health. But today... Every time a church casts somebody out for adultery or for fornication, and it's usually all the sexual sins because we never are going to go after like a wagging tongue, I think it's really incredible that if we were to read an article about Reverend so-and-so says such-and-such about this situation, we always expect that it's going to be about pornography, about this or that, sexual misconduct, adultery, fornication. That's what we immediately assume. We never think that they're going to decry the injustice of poverty or imbalance in trade with countries that cannot afford to combat United States power. We, 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 stand, we don't ever think that, that we're talking about a, a balance of power and justice or women's rights. That, that's not what we're known for. 
we basically got one sin that we're really down on, and that's sexual sins, and not anymore. Most of the time, the Christians are only down on homosexuality. That's the only thing that we really get bent out of shape about. We've got to start to think that this is not the direction that we need to go. That it has, I can't tell one time, and I've heard men say, oh, well, I, we judged this situation, blah, blah, blah. And that person find, repented and came back and they've been a faithful member. Okay, okay. Well, a stop clock is right twice a day as well. But I've literally seen dozens of 1 Corinthians 5, and I've never seen it work. Part of it is our own brokenness to be able to execute judgment on people, or for us to be able to call people to something greater, or for us to somehow really show our love. Matt Delahante's mother was not showing him love. She can say, I love you, tough love, but that had nothing to do with it. It was all about her broken faith that believes that this imminent return of Jesus is so compelling and so twisted in her mind that she's going to force power move her son into faith? Come on, man. That, that doesn't seem like it makes any sense at all. So how should we think about sin within the community? I'm talking about the communities of faith. How should we really think about it? Because I'm certainly not one for throwing out the baby with the bathwater saying, well, you know, we're all sinners, so we just keep sinning. We keep doing all these nasty things and things that break down relationships and families. And no, that, I, I'm, I'm off that train. But as we're growing, as we're transitioning from weak Christians, as we're transitioning from sinners, there's some grace in there. And there's some patience. There's some time. Do you know how long it takes to undo the tangled mess of our minds, our, the things, our experiences, the things we go through, how long it takes to untangle that stuff? Literally years of prayer, meditation, living, actually practicing righteousness and justice. It takes time to undo the selfishness. So how should we think about sin within the Christian community? Well, the first thing that Christians need to do is realize that skeptics are just as moral as we are. I don't want that to be true. And there are certain studies that are a little deceptive that might indicate that that's true. But it's not true. In a recent uh, Canadian survey, they asked both theists and atheists, what do you think about this moral value and that moral value? Honesty, kindness, family life, being loved, friendship, courtesy, concern for others, forgiveness, politeness, friendliness, patience, generosity. And in every one of the responses, the theist, the believer in God, answered higher. They answered more favorably that they believe in those morals. The atheists, like honesty, 94% theists believe that honesty is an important moral value. Atheists, 89%. Kindness, 88% of theists, 75% of atheists. Okay, great. What's interesting to me is that one blog titled The Conversation in an article, Are Religious People More Moral? The research is summarized, quote, Social scientific research on the topic offers some intriguing results. 
When researchers ask people to report on their own behaviors and attitudes, religious individuals claim to be more altruistic, compassionate, honest, civic, and charitable than non-religious ones. Even among twins, more religious siblings describe themselves as being more generous. But when we look at actual behavior, these differences are nowhere to be found, end quote. So despite the Canadian survey, the response of the theists that they were more honest and kind and fa- you know, had believed in family life and being loved and friendship, though they valued those things highly relative to their atheist respondents, we see that their actions are no different. And this is one of Jesus' biggest warnings about saying one thing and doing another. So let's be careful, because as Christians, we may end up purging ourselves out of our own midst. In another comparison of Christians and atheists, they focused on the similarities. And I thought this was interesting. I'll just read a few of them to you so that you get an idea. Both the Christian and the atheist probably want to increase world happiness and reduce suffering. Not a lot of people saying, no, you know, I want the world to be a darker and more dismal place. I I want there to be a rise of suffering. Maybe uh, measles will actually take over the world. Both Christians and atheists hold thousands of beliefs for which she has no well-tested evidence. Christians and atheists almost certainly hold some beliefs that logically contradict other beliefs. Christians and atheists are plagued by over a dozen powerful cognitive biases. Christian and atheists may be anywhere from extremely intelligent to frightfully stupid. Christians and atheists may have a range of beliefs about evolution, cosmogony, and the nature of space-time. Atheists and Christians hold many beliefs and attitudes out of trust, not evidence. Atheists and Christians often make assertions about topics they know relatively little about, including this podcaster. And finally, atheists and Christians may live in a bubble of like-minded friends or have many friends with diverse beliefs. If we turn that last similarity into a positive statement, most of the problems within humanity would be resolved. If we didn't live in a bubble of friends, or if we live in relationship with many friends with diverse beliefs, wouldn't that be a better world? I know, tilt, tilt, warning. No, Rob, we have to purge evil from our midst. Well, well, I'm not sure that that's the way it works. Let's, let's go on, and we're going to look finally at Jesus' example. One of the things in episode 10 that I talked about online was how Sam Harris and others have not descended into nihilism. Sam and others of his class are moral, good citizens. His book online is extraordinary. Of course, Christians and skeptics can wear their beliefs on their proverbial sleeves, looking for an offense where one probably doesn't exist. I don't want to jump to my conclusion, but I think we all realize that we want world happiness and reduce suffering. That's what we're after, right? Don't you want less suffering? Don't you want more joy between you and your loved ones, your friends, your acquaintances? 
The statistics are not on our side. Skeptics and Christians, there's no difference in our morality. Shocking, but true. Pat Flynn, who's a blogger, his blog title is Word on Fire. He said, it seems to me that in a godless, pitiless, and random universe, where all morality and meaning are merely the result of bioevolutionary happenstance, we have no reason to think that any sense of meaning or morality is either valid or binding. That it exists independent of our thinking about it. When I read that, I thought, we'll have to see. We'll have to see when we've had a couple of hundred years of secular dominance, what happens to the moral underpinnings of civilization. You might say, Rob, we don't have time for that. We've got to stop it. Secularism's on the rise. We've got to... Blah. No, just how about, how about this? If you're a Christian, trust Jesus, start to live what your survey results say, and maybe we'll, maybe we'll get somewhere. It's, it's crazy, man. I want to live the survey results, not say the survey results, judge the atheists that they're actually the ones telling the truth. They're the ones who are, have an honest assessment of themselves. We say and do not. So Pat Flynn, he might see meaninglessness and, and all of that. And I, and I agree. I don't know where, you, where the moral compass comes in if it's not external to me, because most of the time I just want to do what feels right for me. I'm almost finished with Charles Taylor's book, Secular Age. He uses this one phrase several times, loss of meaning. He's referring to the development of art and music and ideas, and Taylor tips his hat to emerging secularity, writing, quote, This modern space for anti-structure opens up unprecedented possibilities for untrammeled creation. See, he's talking about all the art and the emergence of, of uh, new ideas. That, that being unfettered and un, uncontrolled allows for more creation. But he goes on to say, And at the same time, hitherto, unexperienced dangers of isolation and loss of meaning. Both of these come from the fact that this space is private. He puts that in quotes. It's public spheres sustained by purely voluntary participation, end quote. Later, Taylor writes about the buffered identity, that private space I just quoted. He writes, quote, Our age suffers from a threatened loss of meaning. This malaise is specific to a buffered identity whose very invulnerability opens it to the danger that not just evil spirits, cosmic forces, or gods won't get to it, but that nothing significant will stand out for it, end quote. What he's saying is when a person loses meaning, a melancholy can fall over the mind, and when this depression spreads, we may see a world that no longer cares and devolves into our dystopian nightmares. Dostoevsky summarizes this thought with, quote, if God does not exist, everything is permitted, end quote. Or maybe not. Maybe humanism can build structures of meaning and retain the foundations of civil society, negating the social structures previously provided by the gods or the God. Bruce Ashford, he wrote, quote, 
If we wish to make the gospel once again imaginable in our liberal society, we must offer a storied community who embodies its truth, end quote. We've got to embody the truth. We don't preach the truth. We don't write birthday cards with the truth in it. We embody the truth, and the truth is displayed in the love of Christ. The love of God, that one song says, the love that drew salvation's plan. The plan of saving humanity from itself sometimes is a plan that was developed from love. Ashford goes on to say, quote, We need to play the long game by not putting all of our hopes in short-term power political plays. That can be individual political plays like Matt's mother. Or it can be corporate plays where we pressure people within our congregations or within our communities or within our political systems to comply to our religious beliefs. He says, short-term activism has its place, but its ability to shape society and culture is limited. And it can tempt us to sacrifice long-term witness on the altar of short-term political gains. End quote. Finally, in reference to millennials, he writes, quote, Churches interested in reaching millennials, and this is my comment here, I would say that anyone who has been touched by secularism, which is most of us in the West, need to become skilled in that sort of patience that graciously makes space for the questioner, the cross-pressured unbeliever. The church must not be a place prone to overreaction or quick to provide conversation-stopping cliches, which inadvertently produces reactions in our questioners. Questions and dialogue must be welcomed, end quote. My point in all of that is that we live in a very complex society. Our experiences, our faith, the the evidences that come into our mind and make sense to us cause us to believe differently, have diversity. Our cultures, they they add. Our race adds. Our sex adds. Adds. Everything adds to the complexity of how we perceive the world. And as Christians, we've got to be mature. The most mature among us should be Christians if, we, if, it were, if it's true. If Jesus' revolution for bringing on new humanity is true, then it certainly should produce mature thinking people. We cannot continue to be defensive and overreactive and be driven by our own fears. I mean, I thought that was interesting. His mother writing, this is the last generation. The rapture is coming. These were all fear-driven. You could tell he loves his, Matt loved his mother. But everything she said was driven by bogus religious fear. Let's look at Jesus for just a minute here. In John 8, there's this story about uh, Jesus and uh, the woman that is caught in the act of adultery. I think this is an interesting passage because it really flies in the face of so much of Christian tradition. And we're going to get to that, but let me read this passage. Early next morning, this is John 8, starting in verse 1. Early next morning, he returned to the temple, and the entire crowd came to him. 
So he sat down and began to teach them. But the scribes and Pharisees brought in to him a woman who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand in front and then said to him, Now, master, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. According to the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women to death. Now what do you say about her? They said this to test him, so that they might have some good grounds for an accusation. But Jesus stooped down and began to write with his finger in the dust of the ground. But as they persisted in their questioning, he straightened himself up and said to them, Let the one among you who has never sinned throw the first stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing with his finger on the ground. And when they heard what he said, they were convicted by their own consciences and went out one by one, beginning with the eldest until they had all gone. Jesus was left alone, and the woman still standing where they had put her. So he stood up and said to her, Where are they all? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, sir. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus to her. Go home and do not sin again. That's a powerful. Because what Christianity has become known by is our ability to call out sexual sin. And the only reason I'm referring to sexual sin right now is because that's the only one we ever call out. Oh, and not tithing. The scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman to the temple and place her in the middle. This woman is physically surrounded by these guys that are wanting to accuse her. She's an object on display. Given no name, no voice, no identity, apart that she stands accused, a woman caught in the act of adultery. And don't we do that? Don't we do that to our unbelieving children, unbelieving spouse, unbelieving parents? We, we circle them. They get together at family dinners and they can't feel comfortable at Christmas time because they're going to be surrounded. They become an object, standing accused. Verse 7 indicates that Jesus' questioners recognizes Jesus' gesture as kind of an act of a refusal. He's not going to engage them. He just stands down and he just begins to piddle in the, in the dirt. And as they continue to question him, Jesus stands up and he addresses them and he says, you know, his statement is not a direct response to their question, uh, but it's an, it's an invitation for them to start to reflect on their own lives. And after they all kind of filter out sheepishly, Jesus asks the woman a couple of questions. She, he says, where are these people? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Jesus has given this woman a chance to interpret her own situation. In verse 11, the woman speaks for the very first time and answers Jesus directly and says, no one, Lord. I guess that included herself. Jesus responds to the woman And his words confirm what the physical movements of the story have already kind of suggested. And that is that there was not going to be any condemnation for the woman. And the woman can go just as the rest of the crowd had. Their their past sins were being addressed in the 7th chapter. And her future sins are being addressed in the 11th chapter. He says to them, he that is without sin cast the first stone. And then he says to her, go and sin no more. I mean, it was an opportunity for these two people, these two groups, to to see that they're on level playing field. The sinner and what appears to be the saints, they're on the same playing field. We're all in the same boat. 
It's interesting that Augustine, he summarizes this whole story as the sin of the woman and the grace of Jesus. But doesn't that only help to objectify and dehumanize that woman in the same way that the scribes and the Pharisees were doing? In verse 4, they're saying, hey, we found this woman in the very act of adultery, the sinner woman, right? It's doing the same thing. When Augustine says that the woman is sin and Jesus is grace, as good as that thought might be, but it applies to all of us. Different than Augustine is uh, Calvin. And I mean, Calvin goes crazy with this passage in his commentary. Calvin states, It is not related that Christ simply absolved the woman, but that he let her go free. And this is not surprising, for he did not wish to undertake anything that did not belong to his office. Those who deduce from this that adultery should not be punished by death must, on the same reasoning, admit that inheritance should not be divided, since Christ refused to arbitrate between two brothers. Indeed, every crime will be exempt from the penalties of law if the punishment of adultery is remitted, for the door will then be thrown open to every kind of treachery. I think, I think what sometimes grips the hearts of Christian mothers and fathers when they find out their son or daughter is an atheist or gay or whatever is this fear that the door will be open to every kind of treachery. This fear of Calvin. See, he's, he's saying Jesus just was indifferent about the woman. That wasn't part of his mission. So he just let her go free. Not that he absolved her. Not that he gave her life. Until the treachery of life choices of family and friends and associates becomes unsustainable. That is, until we can no longer tolerate within our social environment the bad behaviors of a person, we need to be living at peace with them and do no harm to them. If there is a loving God, then we should agree that he has more power to persuade them than we do. It is likely that our interference through judgment and distance is doing more harm than good. I owe a lot to one commentator on this passage, O'Day, and she continues uh, her thoughts when talking about Calvin. Says, quote, Calvin then reinforces why adultery should be punished including the threat that property will pass to an illegitimate child, and the chief evil is that the woman disgraces the husband. So that's what Calvin gets out of that story. Calvin, he wants to prevent adultery and believes that it should be punished by death so that the husband is not disgraced. I mean, that's like, that's like honor killings. Calvin precludes finding grace in this text. He doesn't believe that there's any grace at all. And he goes on in his commentary to decry Augustine's doctrine, which I thought was much more favorable than his, as presented by the Pope. He says, quote, Yet the Popish theology is that in this passage, Christ has brought in the law of grace, by which adulterers may be freed from punishment. Why is this? but that they may pollute with unbridled lust nearly every marriage bed with impunity. This is the result of that diabolical celibacy. End quote. My God! That Calvin, man, what a dark personality. What is his problem, man? I mean, he goes right to the straw man arguments. He, he's so ad hominem 
about his arguments. Unbridled lust. Nearly every marriage bed is going to be polluted with impunity. (laughs) Come on, really? Because Christ is being gracious in that story and shows love? See, Calvin completely overrides Jesus' actions. He concludes that although Christ remits men's sins, he does not subvert social order or abolish legal sentences and punishments, end quote. In other words, Jesus may forgive you, but we're going to punish you for your sins. Welcome to Calvinism. Calvin was protecting the interests of men when he said that the chief evil is that the woman disgraces her husband. Don't underestimate the creative power of vested interests to spin any text to protect the power of the interest. This is a dangerous characteristic of humanity. Skeptic and believer, facts usually get shaped to confirm our biases. The scribes and the Pharisees and the woman of this story are invited to leave behind a world of judgment and condemnation and death and enter a world of acquittal and life. Why don't we acquit one another? Why don't we breathe life to one another? Let's love one another. This seems to me like a way forward for believers and those we label sinners. Have we not experienced enough life to know that we are in need of some forgiveness and some compassion? Instead of judgment and condemnation and separateness, how about forgiveness and a new way of life? Connect with others because they are made in the image of God. Or simply, they are part of the human race and have value. No more love bombing, as Matt Dillahunte refers to his mother's actions. Jesus loves the one outside of the faith, and we should not play the tough love card too quickly. Skeptics need to remember that they are susceptible to living in a bubble, listening to the same podcasts, reading the same blogs, going to the same places with the same like-minded people. We all have a tendency to gravitate to relational echo chambers, hearing only variations of our favorite themes. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus left, so to speak, according to the scriptures, the echo chamber of God's presence. And he came. I love how Paul puts this in Romans 5. He says, For while we were still weak, at that time, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I love that final word, reconciliation. But notice that while we were weak and sinners, like the characters in our last story, Christ died for us. We can get along, you know, with that. We can, we're familiar with weakness and sinning. But the next comment While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Enemy love is a morality that can't be easily duplicated. This is an active love, 
like God and Jesus. Before anyone was capable of responding, they took action. They, Jesus left the, the safety of the presence of God and became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that tabernacling, that living in our, you know, taking up residence in the neighborhood that Jesus did showed that he wanted to connect with us despite our weakness, despite our sin, and despite our enemy's attitudes towards him. Before anyone was capable of responding, they took action. Actions that sought reconciliation. That's that last line. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. So I'm not sure why, as Christians, we would ever want to put people away or make them feel uncomfortable. I'm not talking about not having conversations. But respectful dialogue is much more uh, palatable than preaching, as I'm doing here in this podcast. I'm getting a little preachy, I apologize for that, but I'm passionate about reconciliation. I'm passionate about people being together. I've seen division. I've seen separation. I've been disfellowshipped. I know it's a damnable doctrine. I know what it's like to be on the other side of that judgment. And it's painful. And Matt Dillahunte's response to his parents' actions caused me to remember all the times that I took hard lines with people. All the times my comments lacked grace. Let's be the people that God called us to be. Let's live the survey results. Let's connect with skeptics and sinners because it's only there in relationship that we could ever hope to connect with people enough to share with them the hope that we have. And if they still reject it, then it's not like a notch on our belt. We don't just move on to the next person. We stay in relationship because relationship is what we were created for. We don't reject people because they're not like us. We continue to connect so that we can understand better. That's my hope, at least. And I believe it's the hope of many Christians. I believe it's the hope of many skeptics and atheists. I believe together we can have open dialogue. We can work together to solve some of the challenges that face us. So let's do that. What do you say? All right. Well, I appreciate it. That uh, probably a pretty lengthy podcast. I'm going to have to edit some of it down, but I don't, I'm sure it's going to be a little long. So I apologize for that. A little longer than your normal commute. But I appreciate you listening to the podcast. You can uh, see the show notes for this and all the other podcasts on my website, planetjesus.net. Or on iTunes or Spotify, you can listen to it there as well. I appreciate you. Appreciate your time. And uh, send me a note. Let me know what you think. Dialogue with me. It might be included in the next episode. Uh, God bless you all. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks.